Well, let's bow together in a word of prayer as we go to the word. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege that we have to know you and to have your word before us. We ask that as we open your word this morning, that you would please open our eyes to see the wonderful things that are there. Father, may you put distractions aside and may our hearts be able to fully focus on you, on your truth, and on how we should change in light of that truth. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Well, autonomy is the doctrine of the day. It's the slogan of our society and the motto of our generation. We are autonomous. We live downstream from the philosophers of the Enlightenment, and in them they taught that we should have liberty, which is true and is actually based out of a Christian worldview. But those truths of personal liberty have continued to flow even farther so that people today have found warrant for unrestrained personal liberty. The claim is that we are self-sufficient and we can do whatever we want. But this not only runs into practical problems, such as when what I want to do uh, conflicts with what you want to do, how do we resolve that? But it also does not accord with Scripture. You see, we as humans were created as dependent, not independent creatures. We were made to need another, namely God. And the early chapters of Genesis make this abundantly clear, right? We were made by God for His glory. We were made in His image. We were made in a special relationship with God. And therefore... We needed to hear from him, and we needed to humbly receive what he revealed about himself and about us. In other words, you and I were created to be revelation receivers, to receive the revelation from God. Now, as we look to the Word of God and to hear and to see how God has revealed himself, we see two main categories for how God has revealed himself. Theologians use the categories of general revelation and special revelation. General and special. General revelation is that which God has revealed about himself and can generally be accessed by all. This is found in nature and in creation. And then special revelation, which is what God has revealed uh, directly by directly speaking to mankind and can be found today in his word. General, seen by all, special, found in his word. And these different modes of God's communication to us can really be seen all throughout Scripture, but they're uniquely celebrated by David in Psalm 19. And if you're not there already, I invite you to turn your personal copy of God's Word to Psalm chapter 19. If you don't have your own copy of God's Word, you can turn there in the pew Bible that's directly in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible today, we want to get one in your hands. And so please go to our Connect Corner after the service, and we have some Bibles there we'd be happy to give you for you to be able to take home today. This psalm, Psalm 19 certainly holds a special place in Scripture and in the doctrine of the church. In fact, the famous Christian author C.S. Lewis, in his reflections on the psalm, said this of Psalm 19. He says, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. And that's certainly a subjective statement about how he valued this psalm, but I trust that you will see why he said such great things about this psalm 
after we go through it this morning. This psalm beautifully celebrates God's revelation of himself in creation and in his word. And then David models for us how we as believers should respond to such revelation. Let's begin by reading the psalm. Follow along as I read Psalm 19. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In this psalm, we are going to see David help point our attention in three directions so that we would be transformed people. He's going to point our attention in three different directions so that we would be transformed people. And the point in all of this is that we cannot come face to face with God's revelation of himself and not ourselves be affected and be changed. And David shows that for us here in this psalm. Well, the first direction that David points us in this psalm is to look up at the heavens, to look up at the heavens. He comes out of the gate declaring, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The two words used here to describe that which is above us here on this planet are the heavens and the sky above or the expanse. These are the reference to the visible heavens, that which we see when we walk outside and we look up. That is what David is referencing. And we see the reference in verse 2 to day and to night, and therefore we can conclude that there is something about the sky above us, both in the day and in the night, that David wants us to pay attention to. Now why does he have us look up? Well, because there's a message to be found there. Notice that David personifies creation as preachers. He says that they are declaring or proclaiming something. David here is using the sky as a representative of all creation. In other words, the sky is not the only thing that's proclaiming these things. He's simply pointing to the most notable, the most noticeable thing anywhere on this planet is the sky, which is above us. And he's using that to say that all creation proclaims a message about God. And what is this message? He says it declares the glory of God and his handiwork. But what specifically about the glory of God, about the character of God, can, has God revealed about himself in creation? 
Here we see the content of the message that the sky is proclaiming. We see, I think, first, just the fact of a creator, right? Creation reveals the creator. It shows that someone has crafted each element of the natural world. The word for God here is, is El, which is actually in contrast to the word for Lord throughout the rest of the psalm, as we'll see later. This word for God speaks of God's transcendence over the created world. This is the one who stands up and above everything that is created. And this is really the argument of, of design, that when we see design, we inherently know it. Right, if, you're, if you've ever gone on a hike or a backpacking trip and you've, you've gone through um, miles and miles of wilderness and you're just seeing natural, uh, the natural world and then you stumble upon a cabin, you're not thinking, wow, all those boards happen to fall in the right place at the right time. No, you think, who was here? Somebody was here and someone built this. And the same is really true about all of the natural world. That we can look at everything that's been created and realize that there's great order and great design and great beauty and all of it. And therefore, someone, a person, a divine person has made this. And this is something that everyone can see. So we not only see the fact of the creator, but we see the power of the creator in the things that are made as well. In order for mountains, oceans, galaxies, and stars to come into existence, someone had to have made them, and that person must have been extremely powerful. Because as we just walk upon this planet, we feel incredibly small. And if you haven't had that feeling, just go to the Grand Canyon and stand on the edge, right, and look out and realize that we are so small in light of even just what's created But in order for this huge expanse to be created, there has to be one who is greater and bigger and more powerful than even the created, and that is the creator. And so creation reminds us of the power and the immensity of God. It also points to the majesty of God. And I think think this is what we often think of, is, is the beauty that we see all around us. This world is not boring or dull, or monotone. It possesses and creates scenes that leave us speechless. The sunset is not the same every time. The sunset, we've all experienced this, right? Where you just sit and you stare and you look and you're just captivated by it and and you're looking at it for a half hour, for an hour, and and, and, and it changes before your eyes and there's different hues and different colors. That's all just in one one event at the end of one day, and tomorrow it's going to be even different, and yet it's going to be beautiful in its own way. Or take, if you've ever gone out of the L.A. area to where you can actually see the stars and, uh, and looked up, maybe, maybe uh, to the desert or, or those places where the sky is clear, and just being able to look up and see the stars, and that, that vast immensity you see the Milky Way and, and you see the, the, the tons of stars you didn't even know were there and, and, and you just feel incredibly small and your neck just gets cranked just staring and staring and staring because it's so beautiful. These things all point to the creator who made them. And think about David who's writing this. Remember, he was a shepherd So he spent many days and many nights out on the hillsides and he had time to sit and think about all that's around him. He had time to lay there and to look up and to consider the sun and to consider the stars and consider the creation. And so he says, it's those heavens, it's those, that creation that declares the glory of God. David tells us that the handiwork of God speaks of the glory of God. Nature does not tell any other message. It does not tell the story of a trillion lucky mutations over the course of millennia. It does not proclaim a rhetoric of randomness. 
In fact, evolution is absolutely incapable of explaining the beauty that we see in nature. Because, see, everything based upon evolution is by function. It needs this in order to survive, and therefore this uh, was stayed in existence or developed or whatnot. But it cannot explain why it's beautiful. Sure, they might try to explain why something works or why it's there, but why are we so captivated by it? Why is it pretty? If it's just needed to survive, it doesn't need to be pretty. But the Christian worldview can totally account for beauty in this world because it's created by the beautiful one. And in this, we also see then the wisdom of the creator as well. That everything has a place. Everything works together. Planets spin in orbit over vast amounts of space that we can't even put our minds around. I mean, we try to use the term light years, but, uh, and, and, and that enables us to keep the numbers all on one page. But uh, it's, just, it's just so vast, and yet it all works. The water cycle continues. Food chains and ecosystems continue to move on. All of this by an all-wise God who devised such a world. And because creation tells us something about God, it demands something of us. Paul, in Romans chapter 1, tells us that, that creation is speaking about God. Everyone knows that there's a creator. And that because of that, we should honor him and give thanks to him as the creator. But we don't. Mankind exchanges the glory of God for images of created things. We toss out that message about God. So we see here in verse 1 that we see the content of the message that, that nature is declaring, and that is about the glory of God. But we secondly see the duration of this message. Does this message ever hit pause? Does it ever end? No, verse 2 says, Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. In other words, he's saying that this message is unceasing. The character of it is that it's always playing, always going. It never turns off. Day, all day and all night, it's speaking to whoever will listen. Verse 3 then gives us the format of this message. How does this message come to us? He says, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. This is a message that goes out without words. It's a billboard without a message, without particular words on it. It's a speaker without audible words because it's a message that's received by the senses. This is a message that we see with our eyes and we hear with our ears and we feel with our hands. David says that the this voice of creation, though, this message that goes out is not heard because it's not an audible message. Verse 4 then tells us the range of this message. Is it only to a select few? Does nature only proclaim this to a small amount of people? No. Verse 4 says their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. He emphasizes the full extent of the influence of the heavens is that it goes throughout all the earth to the end of the world. The preaching of God's creation transcends all barriers, whether linguistic or geographic. There is a message about the glory of God that reaches every single person on this planet. Now, if you're using an NASB, a KJV, or New King James, you'll see the use of the word line in the beginning of the first phrase of verse 4. These translations have followed the Hebrew text, while the ESV and others have followed the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And this and hence, it's translated uh, voice or sound. And this is, uh, this is also in accord with how Paul, 
Paul quotes this verse in Romans chapter 10, verse 18. And Paul quotes from the Septuagint as well. And uh, from the Septuagint. And so I believe that they, they both are saying the same thing. That, the, that the, the message of creation is going out to all. And there's not a significant difference between those two translations. Well, after uh, David is talking about the gener- general aspects of creation, he then turns to talk about a specific messenger. Someone who, uh, or one, one aspect of creation that's particularly declaring this message. And he's, it's at the end of verse 4. He says, In them, meaning the heavens, he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there's nothing hidden from its heat. The sun is the dominant actor, the dominant speaker of this message. Now we have to remember that David did not know all that we know about a solar system and about how all of those things work together. And so he's simply describing the beauty and the wonder of the sun from the perspective of someone here on this planet as we experience it every day. And he describes the heavens as a tent for the sun. This idea that that the sun goes into the tent every night and it comes out every morning. It reemerges. In fact, that that prospect or that, that, that reality of coming out of the tent every morning, he continues to describe uh, by saying that it's so glorious, it's like a joyous bridegroom coming out of the bridal chamber. Or, or he says it's so powerful, it's like a strong athlete running its, his race with joy. The sun dominates the sky like a strong man dominates his race. And in this He's declaring the glory of God. Because, you see, the sun is set in the sky by its creator. It runs on a track laid out for it. It's regular. It's set. It's consistent. That's why David says that it's circuit, and it's circuit to the end of the, of the heavens. There's, this, there's a circuit. There's a track that it's running on. And mankind has been able to tell time based upon the consistency of the sun. And in fact, Genesis 1.14 tells us that's what they were created, it was created to do, along with the stars. David ends his description of the sun by saying that just like no one is beyond the earshot of nature's proclamation, so no one is beyond or hidden from the heat of the sun. Talking about the totality that it, of its range. So as we finish this section of of David's ode to general revelation, to God's declaration of himself in nature, what are some things that we can say about this message? What can we say about general revelation and what it's saying to mankind? We can say, number one, that everyone knows something about God. This is clear in this verse, in uh, 19 verse 1, and particularly in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. They know he exists, and they know that there is a moral law that they are accountable to, Romans 2, 14 and 15. And therefore, they are without excuse, Paul says in Romans 1, 20. But mankind naturally rejects this message. It's all around them, it's speaking to them, but they harden their hearts against it. And, he, and Paul conti- goes on to say that they, that they continue to turn to other things, to the created things, instead of to the creator. In fact, one theologian summarized this by saying, God's clear revelation of his eternal power and divinity in nature, far from leading mankind to proper recognition, worship, and service of God, is actually misused and perverted in terrible ways that deny and dishonor God. We turn the truth and we turn it into an idol. And so therefore, general revelation is insufficient for salvation. 
This message that nature is proclaiming is not sufficient to save. It's sufficient to condemn, but it's not sufficient to save. And again, quoting another theologian, he says, it's important to state that the insufficiency of general revelation to lead sinners to God is not a failure on God's part. But the success of his purpose to glorify his son in the gospel as the only way of salvation. In other words, God wants to glorify his son in the gospel and point everyone to him so that his son receives the glory and is treasured. And therefore, he has designed to set it up so that all must know and come to him to be saved. So, What is the use of this general revelation in nature for us? We have had our eyes opened. We know the God who created these things. Well, in Joel Beakey and Paul Smalley's systematic theology, they suggest two functions, two ways that we as Christians can benefit from this general revelation that nature is speaking to us. And... I believe that they're helpful categories. The first is that we can use it in our evangelism. If you study the book of Acts, you'll see that Paul, as he is speaking to Gentiles, often begins at the point of creation. He goes back to what has been seen and can be seen by all people. And that is his starting point for helping to show people that they are in need of salvation. Now, it's important to see that that, that general revelation is not a tool for Christians to convince people of something that they do not know, but to convict them of what they do know and fail to live up to. This is revelation that is available to them and they know deep down. And Paul says they're suppressing the truth. They're trying to hold it down and, and ignore it. And we're simply trying to point to the fact of that truth that they already know. So we can use it in our evangelism to the lost. We secondly, as Christians, can use this message in our exaltation of God. Right? We can praise God for the beauty of this world, for all that he has made, and lift our hearts in praise to him. We can't help but look at the created world around us and praise God for all that he has made. So as you look at Psalm 19, the first direction that David points our attention to is to look up at the heavens and see, his, see the glory of God. The second direction that David points us is to look down at the Word. To look down at the Word. Now the transition in the text from verse 6 to verse 7 is stark. And everything indicates that there's a significant change in subject matter. As I mentioned earlier, the name for God changes. He uses El in the, in the first section, and he changes then to the covenant name for God, Yahweh, in this second half of the psalm. Yahweh is the name, the personal name for God of the one who had redeemed Israel from Egypt. And so there's a, a more personal nature that is indicated by that. We also see that David's poetry changes. He, he goes to a really tight uh, poetical lines in which each word almost is revealing something new. And we, we have to slow down in order to make sure we don't miss everything that he's saying. And as we noted earlier, he first spoke about general revelation. He's now speaking about special revelation. Specific realities about who God is, about our condition, about the way of salvation. Now verses 7 through 9 give us some of the most glorious descriptions of the Bible and of Scripture found anywhere in the Bible. And if you were here today and you found your experience with the Bible to be boring, that you uh, yawn when you come to the Bible and you're not sure uh, if it has a, a role in your life, let These words spark your heart this morning. Sit up and pay attention because the scriptures are the most powerful thing on this planet and they have the power to transform us and to change us. If they are 
boring or drab to us. The problem is not with the Bible. The problem is with us. And so as you can see in verses 7 through 9, he gives six parallel statements that give a characteristic of God's Word and the effect that it has in the life of the believer. The first characteristic that we see is that Scripture is perfect, reviving the soul. Scripture is perfect, reviving the soul. Look at verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The, the word the law here is Torah. It's, it means teaching. And Scripture is the summation of God's instruction for us. And David says that this law of Yahweh is perfect. Not so much that it's free from error, although that is totally true, but more that it's complete. It's whole. There's nothing lacking. It possesses everything for us. It is totally sufficient. God's word is complete. It's perfect. There's nothing to add to it, nothing to take away. Now, man's teaching and man's reasoning can never claim such completeness. Even when the smartest people teach, they are still lacking. But not so with God's teaching and with God's law. Now, David says that this law revives the soul. The word revives is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe the effect of food and water upon someone who is famished, someone who hasn't had food or water for several days, and then they eat and drink, and suddenly life comes back to them. That is what the Word of God does to us. It enlivens the soul. It brings the soul to life. The word soul here, nefesh, it refers to our heart, our inner self. And, and David is saying that when we read the Word of God, it, it revives us, it gives fresh life, like fresh water to a thirsty soul. David here is testifying to the life-transforming nature of Scripture. It can literally bring the dead to life. The Word of God gives unbelievers the gospel and opens their eyes to the truth unlike anything else. Our words don't bring life God's Word brings life. And it also revives weary and lagging hearts. It transforms us from the inside out. And there's no self-help book, no blog post, no Instagram or Facebook post that can transform our life like God's Word. Only it has the power to do this. Secondly, David says that Scripture is sure, giving wisdom. Scripture is sure, giving wisdom. He describes it as the testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. The testimony, meaning God's own witness to his word. This witness is sure. It's rock solid. It means that it's immovable. It's trustworthy. It's not going anywhere. It can be depended upon. This trustworthy statement, David then says, makes wise the simple. Makes wise the simple. The word for simple here is a word that refers to an open door. And therefore, when it describes people, it's used in the book of Proverbs as well to describe people who have an open door of the mind. And it's just swinging open, allowing different opinions and different ideas to come in. And someone who has that open door has the potential to either receive wrong teaching and go down the path of foolishness or to receive truth and go down the path of wisdom. And wisdom is knowing what to close the door on. When do I need to shut the door and hold on to truth? And God's word is the one, David says, can make wise the simple. We live in an age that simply says to take in everything and believe all opinions are valid. And they say that we should keep our minds as open doors. But we know that this isn't true. All opinions aren't valid. You can't have some, say something, uh, say that something is true and then say something is false. Somehow you've got to decide between the two. And you've got to live upon something. And so God's word is what makes us wise. 
Knowing the truth is crucial to life, and wisdom is knowing the truth and submitting to it and putting it into action. If you just hear the truth week in and week out, but you never latch on to it and seek to submit to it and put yourself underneath it and go, God, this is your truth. I'm going to live according to it. Then you're not acting wisely. Sure, you're receiving it, but you're not living according to wisdom as the Bible says. And so if you want to grow in wisdom, we need to go to the Word of God. It is able to make wise the simple. The third characteristic of Scripture is that Scripture is right, rejoicing the heart. Scripture is right, rejoicing the heart. David says the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Precepts means directions or orders from a superior. Scripture is composed of orders from the God of this universe to us. And these orders, David says, are right. Right, the word for right here speaks of what is straight, not crooked or or twisting. Therefore, God's word is the right path and shows people the right path to walk in. This reminds me of Psalm 119, 105. A verse, no doubt, many of you have memorized. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's word shows us the right way to walk. Now, most people look for direction and for purpose in life in all the wrong places, and they end up on a crooked path. In fact, if you were here last week, we heard a testimony from a sister getting baptized that she was uh, used to look in her horoscope and at the magic eight ball for, for direction on where to go in life. People look in all the wrong places when the word of God is the place for direction in the straight path. Now walking on the straight path, David says, brings joy to our hearts. It rejoices the heart, he says. As we said earlier, we're made to be dependent upon the Lord. We weren't made to be independent, running off, doing our own thing, making our own decisions. We were made to lean upon God and and trust Him for Him to be our rock and our refuge, our dwelling place, as we said last week. And as we depend upon Him, we find the instruction and direction for life and we find the joy of living in His will. You see, we are most tormented when we are living against God's will because that is not where we are designed to live. We were created by God to live according to His will in His world, in His universe. And the path of sin, of rebellion, only leads towards sadness. Whereas following God's straight path is what rejoices our hearts. The fourth description of Scripture is that it's pure, enlightening the eyes. David here describes the word of God as the commandment of the Lord. Second half of verse 8, the commandment of the Lord. This is a word very similar to precepts, speaking of the commands of one in charge or a prescription that should be carried out. This indicates that the word of God is not optional. (laughs) This is not a bunch of suggestions from God. These are commands, commandments. It's binding on each one of us and requires all people to obey it. And for those who do obey, they reap tremendous blessing. Whereas for those who reject it, find great pain and ultimately their eternal destruction. David says that the word of God is pure. This word pure is only used six times in the Old Testament. A few examples of where else it is used is Psalm 24, verse 4, where he says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Or Psalm 73, 1, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This word pure refers to everything, it's everything as it should be. It's free of what is questionable. It's truly good deep down. The Word of God is the only thing that is exactly as it should be and is free of what is questionable. 
David says that this commandment enlightens the eyes. Now, the phrase enlightening the eyes could refer to uh, brightening one's outlook on life, the, the reality of, of someone who's sitting kind of depressed, and then good news comes to them, and they, they brighten up as they hear a good word. And, but I, I think it has more of a reference to the internal realities of our heart, as, as David has been talking about here, this inner transformation. And this is what Paul picks up in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, that the eyes of our heart are enlightened. You see, as sinners, we need our eyes open to truth. And David says that Scripture provides that to us. It opens our eyes. Because, see, we on our own walk in the dark. We naturally do not see the truth. And without the Word of God, we stumble around in the darkness grasping for what we can. And this is what we see in the world all around us. But God's Word is like that bright beam that brings clarity like we said, it's that light to our path. It, it shines on what is true and it enlightens and opens things up for us so we can see what is real, what is valuable, what is lasting. The fifth description of God's word is that Scripture is clean, enduring forever. Scripture is clean, enduring, enduring forever. Now here, David describes it as the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. And this, I think, simply refers to the fact that it's through God's word that we are taught on how to approach God with reverence and with fear, with awe. It's, it's through the word of God that we get instruction on how to worship and approach God. And so David calls it the fear of the Lord. He says that it's clean. This is a very similar word to the word pure that we saw in the verse previous, uh, it, meaning something that's ethically clean. It's, it's, it's absent of anything that would separate one from, from God. Therefore, it is saying, David is saying that God's word has no defilement of sin, no defilement of error. Psalm chapter 12, verse 7 says, The words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. God's word has no defilement in it, as if it's silver that was purified seven times to try to get all those impurities out, absolutely as pure as it could be. That's the word of God. And he says that this pure word endures forever. Endures forever. We're reminded of what Peter quotes in 1 Peter chapter 1, which is Isaiah 40, in which he says, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. As we said last week, we are passing. This world is changing. It does not stick around forever. But God and his word does last forever. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 17, the apostle says that the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. We can cling to the word of God all our lives because it isn't going anywhere and it isn't changing. It's like an unmoving island in the midst of a turbulent sea. And while the sea splashes its waves all around us in the midst of the turbulent storm, we can hold on to that rock and know that it's not going anywhere because the word of God endures forever. Talk to people, saints, who have lived many decades longer than you and they will give testimony to this truth that the word of God has been their rock through every decade of their life. That it can be held on to no matter what comes our way. The sixth description David gives us is that scripture is true and altogether righteous. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. These rules or judgments are God's, uh, uh, God's judgments on, on what, uh, how we are to live. It's a descriptor of God's will for his people. He's made a judgment and he's declared those to us. And David said these rules are true or are truth in themselves. There's no falsehood. There's no deception or shading of the truth. It's complete, pure, 
unvarnished truth. Folks, nothing else on this earth can be stated this way. Nothing else that you can go to. You can go to all the libraries of the world and you will not find truth like you will find in the Word of God. It is the only thing that is absolutely true all of the time. Jesus prayed for his disciples in John 17, 17. He says, Father, sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. He says that they're all together righteous. Together, all these rules are righteous and they show us righteousness. Each and every verse, every statement in Scripture is righteous and can be trusted. And these emphases that we've seen, these three verses, is why here at FBC the Bible is central to everything that we do. It's not just central in our name, although it is. It's central in our life and ministry here at Foothill. Because only the Bible is transformative in this way. Only the Bible saves. Only the Bible sanctifies. We don't need each other's humble opinions to get through life. We need truth, and it's truth that transforms. It's truth that we must give one another. It's truth that we must take in day in and day out for us to live life in God's universe. So we go to the Word unapologetically. Now, after a clear explanation of the unparalleled qualities of God's Word, David then turns in verse 10 and describes the value of of the word using two metaphors, gold and honey. Look in verse 10. He says, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Now David helps us put the pieces together here. We've just read of all these things that God's word does, and after reading that, he helps us to see that there's nothing compared to it. He says, you can hold it up against the most valuable thing in the world, and it doesn't even compare. God's word is worth more than anything. And yet for many people, sadly even for Christians, right, the word of God takes a secondary or even farther status in our lives. It sits on the shelf collecting dust. It goes another week, another month without really cracking it. And we show with our lives that we value a hundred other things more than we value the Word of God. It's not more desired in us than gold or or than Netflix or than our friends or our occupation or fill in the blank. Think about if you had to restrict the number of copies your family has of the Bible down to one. Or think if we only had one per church. How would we value that copy of God's Word? Pretty highly. In fact, I've heard of saints in the former Soviet Union when they would just be happy to get scraps of the Bible. They would each get a page and be able to take it home and treasure that one page because that's the only bit of God's Word that they had. And yet, Though that we have great publishing capabilities through technology and everything else for us to have multiple copies and have them in our pocket on our devices all the time, it's caused us, I think, to not value the Word of God as highly as we should. But if we truly believed all that David says in verses 7 through 9, we would treasure the Word of God. And that doesn't mean that we treat our Bibles with, as, as sort of sacred objects, um, but it just means that we treasure the truth that's found within it. That we love our Bibles because we love to read of God's Word. Secondly, David points to honey and says that the Word of God is sweeter than honey. Honey was the sweetest thing in the ancient world, the most delightfully tasting thing that they knew. And David uses it as a metaphor for the believer's experienced pleasure of immersing himself in the Scriptures. The Bible comes with the promise of great satisfaction for our souls. Nothing else is tastier, nothing else delights our hearts than the Word of God. Now, if you're like me, there are days we come to the Word of God, we go to open it, and we are not delighting in it as we should. We know it's good, we know we should delight in it, but our heart isn't feeling it, we're not drawn to it. 
And I think that some prayers of the Psalms themselves help us to ask God to change our hearts that we would enjoy it, that we would delight in it. I think of Psalm 119, verses 36 and 37, where David, uh, the, the author of Psalm 119 says, Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. He says, incline my heart to your testimonies. Turn my heart to your word, O God. My heart, it's, he's, he's testifying that his heart is not inclined to the word, and he's praying and asking God that he would turn his heart to the word. And that, my friends, I don't know about you, but it's a prayer that I need, and I need to pray frequently. Well, David has directed our attention to look up at the heavens, to look down at the word, and lastly, he points to look inward at our hearts in verses 11 through 14. And it's starting in verse 11 that David points, uh, begins to address Yahweh directly. Notice he says, verse 11, Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. He says, your servant. He's speaking directly to God here for the first time in the psalm. It's as if David has been speaking to the congregation of Israel, and now he turns and gets on his knees and begins to talk directly with God, and we get to, get to listen in. And David's prayer does not just happen to come at the end of the psalm, but he is, uh, strategically comes after extolling the word of God. In other words, David's words here represents a believer's response to the word of God. In his prayer, we see four groupings of desires in the four verses that are here. These are desires and prayers that we too should emulate. For in verse 11, we need to heed the warnings and remember the rewards. He says that in the commands of the Lord, the law of the Lord, that there are warnings there for the believer, that there are rewards that we're reminded of. The Bible warns us of the folly of sin and the consequences that come from it. And in other words, it places a big do not enter sign at the paths, the broad paths that our friends and family and coworkers are all traveling upon and it looks so good. And yet the Bible warns us and says, don't go down that path. There's only going to end in destruction. It's only going to end in pain. Oh, sure, uh, sin is pleasurable for a season, as Hebrews 12 tells us. But that, that pleasure ends very quickly. Temptation reminds us of the pleasure of sin, and the Bible reminds us of the pain and the consequences that come in giving into that sin. And so we need to be reminded of that. Likewise, we need to be reminded of the rewards that there is something awaiting for us. God is a generous God looking to give and bestow upon his children. And we know that he loves to give to those who walk in his way. So the first uh, grouping of prayers that we see here is that we need to heed the warnings and remember the rewards. Secondly, we need to confess our sin and ask for forgiveness, verse 12. David says, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. He begins here with a, with a rhetorical question. Who can discern his errors? The answer is no one. Even as we compare our lives with the word of God, we don't see everything that we need to change. We can't see the hidden things in us. We need God to show us our sin and ask God to reveal our own hearts to us. Now, as God reveals our sin to us and praying that kind of prayer, that can be kind of depressing, right? To, to begin to see all the sin that's there, those hidden things. Thanks, God, I was doing fine before I saw that. But it's also a grace of God that he would show us where we need to change, where we need to turn. And praise God, he doesn't show us all of our sin all at once because that would be really depressing, right? He gives it to us as we need. And we're thankful for that. But what, did David, what does David do with his sin? Does he ignore it? Does he rationalize it? No, he responds in true faith. 
He knows he stands guilty before God, and he asks for forgiveness. Declare me innocent from hidden faults, he says. And so every time we come to the word of God and our sin is laid bare, we need to turn immediately and confess it to God and know that he is looking to forgive us of our sin. Repentance is what makes Christianity unique. Other religions and other religious systems simply say, do this, add this to your life, and your life will change. The Christian message is not just adding things to our life, but to go to the cross and to die, to let go. And through repentance, we find life. This is what David understands, is that we must die to ourselves, we must confess our sin, repent of it, for us to be declared innocent and forgiven. Charles Spurgeon once said, As ready as you are to sin, Christ is ready to forgive. And so, sinner, what are you waiting for? Christ is ready to forgive. Simply go to him and confess and repent. The third prayer we see here, in, found in verse 13, is that we must admit our propensities and plead for protection. Admit our propensities and plead for for protection. In verse 13, David says, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Now, for David to pray this, he understands that he is prone to sin. He has a propensity to give into sin. And so, after praying for forgiving grace, he prays for sanctifying grace. God, forgive me and keep me. This is similar to the prayer Jesus taught his disciples to pray in Matthew 6, where he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God, please keep me. Do you see the humility of David here to recognize that he could commit these sins and yet he's asking God to keep him from them? asking that they would not have dominion over him. The word presumptuous here is uh, concerning what the Old Testament calls high-handed sins. And this is a, a contrast to unintentional. So you could think of it as obstinate, willful sins and unintentional sins. And here, presumptuous is this idea of arrogant disregard of God's commands. Kind of stiff-arming God and saying, yeah, God, I know you say that, but I'm going to do this anyway. That's what he's talking about when he says presumptuous sins. And he recognizes that those are close at hand, and he asks that God would help keep him from them, that they would not have dominion over him. Folks, we need to pray such a prayer, recognizing that we too have the propensity to sin. We all know it. As the song we sing, right? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. In humility, we recognize that and we ask God, please keep me because I cannot keep myself. Ask that God would protect us because like David, we too want to be blameless. We want to be innocent of great transgression. Now, if you're here today and you say, too late, I'm already, I'm already guilty of great transgression. Too late, I've already gone there. I've already done that. Well, let me remind you that you're in, in good company this morning because the very author of this psalm committed presumptuous sin. He too stiff-armed God in his commands and committed adultery and then killed the husband of the woman he committed adultery with. He knows that feeling of feeling like you've messed it all up. And yet, we read in Psalm 51 that David goes to God and lays himself bare, confesses his sin, and asks for God to forgive him because he knows that God is a good and gracious God. And let that be a reminder to all of us that there is no mistake, no error, no sin too great to keep you from Christ this morning. The gospel door is always open. Come in repentance and faith. Stop holding on to your sin. Stop using it as an excuse. 
keeping you from Christ, but rather see your great sin and make it run to Christ because it's only him that can cleanse you and save you. Fly to the cross and you can know a a guiltless conscience to know that you stand in the righteousness of Christ and that God sees you in him. The fourth prayer we see this morning is the final verse of this psalm, that we need to realize our inability and request divine empowerment. David ends with a sweet and humble request. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Guys, we must see that David recognizes that he can't live his life in his own strength. That even as he goes to open his mouth and tries to do something for God, it might come out unacceptable. And so he needs God. God, please make my words, make the meditations of my heart acceptable in your sight, please. We too need to ask God's help that our words, that our lives would be acceptable in his sight.